You're listening to Growth Vertical, a podcast that inspires people to reach the next vertical point in their journeys. My name's Neil Patel and I'm a digital marketer. I'll be sitting down to share my experiences to help others find the right strategies to grow themselves, their careers and their businesses. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Growth Vertical and today we have an actual special guest here. Yeah, Ed Lyons from Woden, a branding agency that's actually focused on helping businesses utilize storytelling to educate their prospects and to help them find, uh, help them find and help them understand their unique value. So today we're going to actually be talking about how B2B startups should use branding to differentiate themselves and accelerate growth. So thank you, Ed, for coming onto the show. It's, been, it's, it's actually a good idea that, you know, coming onto storytelling is quite an important topic. I think it's emerged more and more over the years as we've gone digital. But I mean, before we get into sort of like the nitty gritty on why it's important and the talking topic for today, could you just tell us a bit more about yourself, uh, a bit of background, maybe some accomplishments and what the journey has been so far? Yeah, I'd love to. And I'll start, of course, uh, Neil, by saying thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Excited to uh, talk a little bit about uh, our story and hopefully some takeaways for uh, everybody who listens to the podcast. So thanks for having me here and, and excited to uh, to chat. Uh, my background um, really, I think, uh, have always been uh, a dyed-in-the-wool uh, kind of entrepreneur. Uh, have never been very good at working for other people, so I've kind of had to, to forge my own uh, path here over the course of my career uh, started that uh, with a chain of uh, community newspapers, uh, which we, me and my business partner began in 2005. Might seem like a odd business to start uh, in the current millennium, but uh, we saw an opportunity uh, just outside of Philadelphia to build a chain of uh, community oriented papers and built that up and sold it after we had about 14 uh, newspapers. And then from there, we got into uh, telecom. And uh, we worked to build a, a telecom company that sold bulk telecom to student housing providers. And uh, that really, I think for me, in a lot of ways, created a big shift to bring me where I am today. Uh, if anyone knows anything about telecom, you know that it's an incredibly commodified business. You know, everyone has access to the same internet, the same TV. And when we started the company, because we were, uh, had already experienced uh, starting one business together, I think we started and kind of felt like we had done everything right. We had a really good team, a really good product. We felt like we had a really good go-to-market strategy, uh, but we were incredibly frustrated because every time we would get in front of our customers, we'd hear the same thing that I think a lot of startups hear. They would say, you know, we love you guys. We love your idea. We hate your competitors. Uh, here in the United States, there's a couple big sort of Fortune 500 telecom companies that I won't name on a recorded uh, podcast, but they would say, you know, we hate these guys. Uh, you know, they don't give great service. You know, we'd love to go with you. And if you can beat them on price, you know, we'll happily sign with you. And I think, uh, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realize that a startup competing on price against the Fortune 500 is not a great uh, battle plan. So uh, we really uh, went through this kind of journey where we had to think about how do you communicate your value in a way that goes beyond talking about the product? Uh, how do you really think about the way to connect with people to your business in a way that they're going to see the value in the way that you do? And um, I think that journey, which I suppose we'll talk about probably more in a second, uh, really is what brought me uh, to Woden. We ended up growing that company pretty quickly, uh, selling it, and I think came out of that with a real appreciation for the fact that, you know, a great product, a great team, uh, those types of things are critical, uh, but they only take you so far, right? And if you can't get others to believe in that vision in the way that you do, uh, it's really hard to get any kind of meaningful traction. And uh, now I've devoted uh, certainly the last six years, and I suspect uh, quite some time to come uh, to helping other companies uh, figure out that exact same problem and, uh, and move forward. Yes, yeah, so it seems like you 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 sort of started up Word and based on the past experiences, right? Whether it's from the yeah. telecoms company and then yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, look, you know, I think any founder of a company would tell you this or even an early stage employee. It's so frustrating when you believe in what you're doing. You see the potential for your business. You see the potential for your product. And you talk to folks and they just don't see it in the same way, right? And again, they reduce you to something like price or a series of features and benefits. Um, and at least with Eloit, you know, what we discovered, which was kind of cool, was that the kids who lived in our properties tended to renew their leases at a much higher rate than uh, those who were serviced by competitors, which we kind of thought was interesting. 
And um, we did some customer listening and found out that in student housing, telecom was the number one amenity for kids. So kids care more about good internet, good TV, than like the pool or the common areas or anything like that, which definitely a shift from when I was in college, but that's okay. And um, what we did was we shifted the whole business away from being an internet provider uh, towards being this kind of tenant experience platform. And we started talking about keeping heads in beds, speeding lease up. And what we saw was that when the conversation shifted away from what we do towards the pain point that our customer is experiencing and the problem that they have and how we're going to address that, that whole value um, that the customer saw really shifted pretty quickly, right? It went from, we're just another vendor selling you something you need to, you know, you've got this big problem that even the other vendors in the space are not addressing and not solving. And I think we saw the price conversation evaporate pretty quickly, really started to fuel a lot of growth in the business. And I think just one of those moments where you look back and you're like, holy crap, like we didn't change anything other than the story that we were telling. And it's like the difference between barely making payroll and ultimately being pretty, pretty successful. And I think, um, yeah, when you experience something like that, both on the frustration side uh, as, a, as an early stage employee and on the success side, uh, it really uh, makes you think, right, well, if I couldn't find someone to do this for me, uh, then there's certainly other folks that have got the, uh, the same challenge and it's, it's exciting uh, work to help people with. Yeah. I mean, I've seen with, with, with what you mentioned about, I think was something I want to definitely put a pin in. And that's the idea that you mentioned behind listening into customers, right? Which, well, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this, but, you know, looking at Woden and how they sort of run things with helping these businesses actually getting insight into what customers think or uh, doing that background research is one of the most crucial steps, right? In the entire system, in fact, to getting brand storytelling, right? Um, and it just seems, yeah, which is, it would be great to put a pin in it because I, I can imagine there's going to be some examples about this later. Yeah, well, and I, and I think, look, you know, I think one of the great mistakes companies make when they think about their story or they think about their positioning is they think that that's something that they're going to go out and create. You know, they're, I'm, going to, I'm going to come up with our story. I'm going to come up with our positioning. When I think the reality is, you know, great stories for companies, great positioning, great value props, they're already in the business, right? And I think the challenge is how do you strip away the extraneous pieces and figure out what to elevate, what to minimize, and then how to structure it? And I think that's one of those places where I think companies can get off track is they think, well, what does the market want to hear? How do we talk about this in a way that we think is going to hit, even if that's fundamentally disconnected from what really, I think, drives the actual business? And I think, you know, that sort of journey starts by looking inward, not by looking uh, outward. Yeah. And that's, I guess that sort of brings me to, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, um, when reviewing some of the messaging positioning on some of the projects that we work on. Mm -hmm. And what's uh, interesting is I mean, you guys work with a ton of startups and B2B businesses specifically as well, and tech businesses as well, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot, of the, a lot of the audience probably even listening in are, for example, from the startup area, or they just marketed themselves in the startup area, that to the more technical side. But we hear these terms, brand, storytelling, positioning, and it gets quite, you know, when you start to think about it, it becomes convoluted, especially the way that it's been discussed or pushed forward mm -hmm. to different businesses, even by marketers themselves. So what does it mean to brand a business? Yeah, I mean, I think at the core of it, right, it, people are, and I'll, I'll kind of back into the brand question by starting to think about what we're trying to achieve. You know, people are ultimately emotional decision makers. We like to think that we're rational. You know, we kind of tell ourselves this fallacy that we make really good kind of fact-based decisions. But the, the truth is, you know, people, when they make a decision, they go for what looks good and then they kind of shoehorn the facts and figures and features and benefits into that to sort of rationalize or justify what they've decided to do. And um, I think, you know, a great brand creates that emotional response in its audience uh, that, you're, that you think is going to drive people forward and connect them to the organization. Um, I know it's a kind of nebulous answer, but I think the reality is every brand creates that in different ways that are authentic to them, right? And, you know, some brands communicating that um, emotion can intentionally be pretty austere, right? And the logo may not play a big role in that. Uh, it may be about sophistication. It may be about technology. You know, other brands uh, are going to be things that are much more designed to excite and inspire, right? And things like visual identity are going to play a bigger role in that. 
you know, I think if I were thinking about this from the standpoint of a, um, a being a founder or again, an early stage employee, I'd be thinking less about kind of checking boxes, you know, do we need a logo? Do we need a brand story? Do we need a brand book or, you know, a visual identity guide or all those things? And I'd be thinking about it from the other side, which is what do I want my customers or potential customers to feel when they learn about who we are? And then what are the conduits and tools that are going to get them to do that? Right. And I think, you know, you see, that can be interpreted in an infinite number of ways. But again, I think it starts with that self-reflection and self-awareness of, of what do I want these people to feel? Because that's the brand. And then I would demote all those other things, again, logo, visual identity, et cetera. Those are just tools, right? To push that kind of feeling out and to connect people to it. Uh, but the brand to me is that is that emotional response uh, that people feel. Yeah, I think it's great that you, you mentioned that. Um... I'm trying to think of how this could tie into something that we've done before, actually. And it's to do, I guess, if we think about it, even when we're talking about copy that's being written on the website or anything like that, or even, let's say, performance ads or anything like that, you focus on the more engaging, emotional sort of copy, right? And that's what sort of takes the eye, you know, captures those eyeballs, right? Or gets someone to stop scrolling because it sort of meets the emotion. And then we talk about emotional to logical selling as well, where you're yep. top of the top of the web page, for example, should be your emotional, you know, assets in terms of copy and your messaging, that sort of thing. And then as you get lower and lower and you walk them further down the sort of, uh, probably don't want to say this when it comes to messaging, but funnel as you will, yeah. then, you know, you get to the more logical steps, which is more the why you should take the action today. And that's what appeals to the logical side. So I'm guessing though, that from what you mentioned, there's a strategic way to use that approach in itself, right? Um, yep. where you only need emotional messaging and only need logical messaging. Well, well, and I think, look, I mean, the first thing I would say is I think folks that disconnect messaging from the funnel are doing themselves a disservice. Like to me, if you connect the brand or connect the messaging strategy or connect the story directly to the sales funnel or the customer journey, uh, that doesn't, to me, doesn't diminish the value of those things. In fact, it amplifies them, right? And I think that's one of, I think, another big mistake that a lot of companies make is they look at their sort of brand and story as this thing that kind of sits off to the side, right? And they say, well, we should have a good story. We should have a good way to think about this. But they don't then draw that conclusion to like, well, if this is in fact a good positioning, if this is in fact a good story, right, then it should be able to move people progressively through that point where they first learn about the brand to when it moves into the consideration set, ultimately when they make the buying decision. And I think good stories follow an arc that's going to hit those kind of key pieces along the way. But um, yeah, I wouldn't, I would never think about deploying a brand or a story if I couldn't tie it into what's going to actually propel the business forward and draw in customers and prospects and actually get us, uh, get us moving in the direction we have to go. Yeah. I think as well with, when you, when we talk about startups, the nature of the environment is so it, I guess it's so lean and so haphazard in, in a way because everything just needs to be moving fast and it's all very scrappy, you know? Mm -hmm. So do you think that's the problem in the B2B landscape at the moment with startups that, you know, they're very, in terms of brand perspective, uh, you know, how should people start out essentially, you know, you yeah, I, not a checklist exercise, but what else? Yeah. I, I'll tell you, like, I don't know that it's that, people are moving fast, right? Because I mean, speed, uh, you know, as a guy who's always kind of worked in smaller, fast growing businesses, I mean, I gravitate towards speed. Nothing makes me more frustrated than a large bureaucratic sort of risk averse organization. But I think the haphazard comment you made is a big piece of that, right? And I think you gotta be, when you put these pieces in place, deliberate about what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, you know, you can't run any kind of experiment without a hypothesis and an expectation for what the results are gonna be. And I do think sometimes people just say, well, throw it out there. Let's see what happens without really thinking critically about like, what are we trying to get out of this? Um, and I think some of that kind of haphazard approach or sort of uh, just pushing this off to the side leads to what I think really is kind of the biggest problem, particularly for B2B tech startups, right? Which is they confuse the sort of features and benefits of their product with the story that they need to tell their audience. And I think when I see the sort of biggest mistake and really probably where most of our projects with a client start 
is they've got some amazing sort of innovative product or service, something new they're bringing to the market that is objectively very exciting. But the way that they talk about it is so driven by, you know, product X does Y, here's how it works, here's what the tech stack looks like, here's how you deploy it. And I think what they do a lot, of, or what you do a lot of the times is sort of two things. Number one, companies often confuse what they know their secret sauce is with what their customer really cares about. Uh, we worked with a, a fintech company a number of years ago that had this amazing uh, lending algorithm that allowed them to uh, lend to sort of people that would not be uh, traditional uh, uh, borrowers or like maybe even eligible for other customers. And they talked so much about this algorithm, which like to them, they knew, and they're totally right. They ended up getting bought by PayPal. They are totally right that the algorithm was what made them special. Like this technology they had built was absolutely the core of their value, absolutely what drove them forward. But, you know, at the end of the day, no customers come landing on their site or downloading their app and thinking like, oh, thank God for this algorithm, right? Like they, what they care about is they're eligible to borrow and to finance in a way that they weren't before. And I think so problem one, a lot of times we confuse what we know makes our companies valuable with what our customers perceive makes our company valuable. And those are not often the same thing, right? And I think what that does in turn is it often leads to, I think, a fallacy where we perceive particularly in B2B we perceive our customer to be a, like a logical and rational buyer, right? We look at it and we say, well, this is a company, it's a B2B sale. So obviously they're gonna lay out all of the sort of things in their consideration set. They're gonna weigh the pros and cons. They're gonna make objectively the best decision and that's clearly gonna be us. Um, but the reality is, right? The, you know, the people in the company making the decision are really who you wanna speak to. And they're just as emotional and fickle as you or I when we're buying a consumer product. And um, I think, you know, brands speak too often to the company, not to the people in the company that are driving the decision. You know, companies don't decide to do anything. People who work at businesses decide to do things. And I think taking more of that person to person approach, and I think this is particularly critical in enterprise sales, where you've probably got, you know, a number of different stakeholders in the buying process and you can't tell one sort of story to that entire company, right? You got to have something that is going to appeal to that first point of entry. And then as you work up the value chain to get to a decision is going to continue to resonate as you move up. And again, that doesn't mean you speak to the business. It means you speak to each of those people as you progress towards the point of sale. And then that's going to have to look a little bit different and is going to have to be emotional. Yeah, I, I agree with that because, because sales cycle, sales cycles are typically longer right, there's going to be a, well, let's say a mul like multiple viewpoints on how a, a product is actually going to be engaged with or how they even bring it in, how they even consider mm -hmm. it in the first place. You know, a lot of these enterprises, for example, would have um, a ton of, for example, research teams uh, or, or a research, just a sole research team that bring solely responsible for bringing in the tech, right, or any improvements because they have a specific goal. And I think um, you mentioned because we're sort of pushing a messaging out there that's more internal focus. So it comes from us. So I think it's mm -hmm. in intrinsic to the business and not extrinsic, right? So we don't really think about uh, the actual overall benefit. And one thing, I don't know if you've seen this as well, Ed, and this will be interesting to actually sort of pick your brains on, but it's more so, have you noticed where a lot of people when they're writing copy or whether they're you know, constructing this messaging sort of database or this m massive system, when they focus on the benefits, they go for the core, we save you time, we save you money, mm -hmm. we save, um, no one talks about, we save you for, from getting frustrated. We stop <laughs> having a, how do I say it? A difficult conversation with your CEO or your CIO or your VP, you know, like no one actually talks about those specific, I guess, emotional elements, right? Something that's more day-to-day -day for them. Do you think that's also like a barrier? Am I correct in understanding that that's, act that's actually a barrier because we just focus on the core everyday benefits that all other companies sort of spray and pray? Well, and I think, so I would agree a hundred percent. And I think, uh, you know, this is particularly important when you think about innovative companies, right? So, you know, we have to remember that every business, or excuse me, every problem that our companies solve people have figured out how to make do with that for, you know, before you showed up, right? So even the most innovative business, whatever problem you're solving, there was a way that it was being solved before, uh, you know, communication, 
before Slack was more annoying, right? It was over email yeah. and it worked, right? Before email, it was more annoying. It was calls and faxes and, you know, for everyone who's under the age of 40 out there, we used to have these machines in our office that printed paper out for us when people wanted to send us a message. Annoying and inconvenient, but it worked, right? And before that, that you, know, you could send a letter. And I think we forget that when we're displacing something, it's not like we're solving a problem that hasn't been able to be solved before. And a lot of times companies, and this comes to, I think, where that time, sort of energy, cost savings, uh, you know, list of benefits comes in. They inadvertently position themselves as a nice to have, right? Like if you go in front of someone, you say, we're going to save you time, we're going to save you money, we're going to save you effort. That to me feels very much like something that is like nice. And like maybe, I'll, you know, if I've got extra budget or extra, uh, you know, sort of bandwidth to think about a project, I'll look at it. But the companies that really gain adoption and traction quickly figure out how to speak to uh, pain points in a way that really get them seen as that like sort of painkiller, urgent, sort of critical, uh, you know, you can't live this way anymore. Like you, and I think companies all times, especially if they're innovative, do themselves by positioning as like a better than, as opposed to a completely kind of innovative or, um, or disruptive kind of uh, uh, player. The challenge, of course, there is like, if you're going to do that, you got to strip away all that time, energy, effort, stuff that everyone else is using. And you got to figure out how to talk about the value prop in a way that's going to take a pain point that your customer already has, but either isn't thinking about, believes they have addressed, or they don't perceive to be critical and elevate it to them in a way where they say, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I can't, I can't go another day without solving this. And I think that's also where you start speeding sales cycles up, right? Because the more critical the business sees it, the faster it's going to fight its way through the sort of um, decision chain internally, right? Because if everyone sits around the table and says, yeah, every day that we're not doing this, we're, we're killing our business, they're going to make a move on that quickly. If you come in as a, hey, we could, you know, maybe make you guys 5% more efficient next year. That's the kind of thing that's going to get caught up for forever because no one's going to ultimately look at the table, around the table and say, like, this is something that we just have to do today. Right. It doesn't really, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really say much in terms of why he should be taking action on it, right? So it's like, the, essentially, you're trying to say that when it comes to convincing someone or persuading someone, you want to talk about the cost of not implementing you today, right? Yeah, I think, you know, look, at the top of every, and this is, I think, also a very difficult concept for people to wrap their head around. But, mm -hmm. you know, urgent top of the funnel messaging is built around pain points. It's built around exposing to people what the problem that your business solves is and why a, your customer, right, cannot endure that another day. And um, people don't like that, right, in terms of uh, companies a lot of times because it's scary. Like when you put out a pain point, right, it's easy for people to self-select out and say, nope, we don't have that pain point. We're not going to talk to you all. And I think that's also where you get in B2B a lot of these very bogged down sales and marketing processes where you get a ton of unqualified leads because when you position purely around, hey, we can help you save some time. You know, yeah, you'll get a ton of people that convert on that landing page or convert through that ad. Oh, nice. That's good to find out about. But none of them or very few of them are really serious buyers. And your sales teams, you know, your SDRs spend a ton of time trying to qualify those people out. Or even worse, if you never use that kind of pain point driven messaging that brings them to a point of decision, you get trapped in that cycle with buyers where they kind of are always saying, I know we haven't made a decision yet, or yeah, we're thinking about this, please send us some more information. You get all those kind of soft no's, um, and it really gets your team chasing a lot of opportunities that are not going to convert, that are not going to drive the business forward. Whereas I think when you lead with a pain point, what it does is it may depress your overall lead volume a little bit, but it amplifies significantly the number of those people who are ready to have a conversation because they look at what's there and they say, yeah, like that speaks to me, that's killing my business too, and like I want to talk to someone who can solve that problem for me. Right. I think it sort of brings into the topic of personalization, right? Because I think a lot of people think, hey, well, when someone says you should personalize your content more to speak almost one-to-one -one opposed to one-to-many, you should, I don't know, use a company name or use their name or, you know, use a, uh, I don't know, potential industry that they're in or their job title. And I think that's almost the, almost a starting point, right? When it comes to personalization, mm -hmm. we're talking about the everyday sort of benefit, how we can segment the audience so that we can speak to them about their particular everyday job and helping them in their everyday role with this particular solution. Um, and sorry, were you going to say something? No, oh, good. 
No, so, and I think that brings it to also internal and external, right? Brand, from a branding perspective, right? So I, I know that this is something that you've, or we've worked on together mm-hmm. so far, right? So with one of the client projects, uh, and, and you mentioned this before, but about company alignment and scalability. So one thing that people, I guess startups don't really look at is how the entire company should be talking about the collective messaging or uh, should be storytelling in the same way opposed to in this sort of fragmented environment where someone understands the product differently versus another, right? How important mm-hmm. do you think that is? Oh, I mean, I think it's, it's critical and it's critical for a couple of reasons. You know, everyone, most people kind of intuitively understand the external value, obviously, of messaging to build the sales funnel, pull people in. But, you know, the first piece of that to remember is that every one of those external touch points is also setting an expectation for the customer that as they move through the sort of customer journey and ultimately convert, what's that relationship going to look like? What's the product going to look like? And I think, you know, from a, just a fundamental standpoint, if your team is not aligned in what they think they ought to be doing for the customer with the promises that you're making externally, you may convert that initial sale, but it's going to kill retention. It's going to bog your uh, product team down in cycles to make either incremental improvements or product shifts that like aren't core to who you are, but were promised somewhere in the uh, in the sales journey. It's going to you know bog down the customer experience team when the the client is unhappy and you know kind of frustrated they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. So from a survival standpoint, right, those two things have got to match up just because otherwise the customers aren't going to stick around. But I think as the company scales, right, the other thing that we have to remember as sort of founders or early stage teams is that. When the company's got like five, 10 people, everyone in the business is like rubbing shoulders with the founder on a daily basis, right? So all those little things, your vision, what you're trying to solve for, how you feel about the market, that stuff just kind of gets naturally um, sort of uh, transition, you know, transmuted to people, right? You know, they're, they, they're with you enough. You have enough of these kind of side conversations. They start to get it. But then when you start to put in that first layer of management, that second layer of management, right? People don't have those direct interactions as much anymore. And you've got to trust two things. Number one, you got to start trusting your team, right? As they onboard new people, as they weed their teams to be able to sort of stay consistent with that vision. And you've also got to start to empower people to move forward independently. You know, like a lot of times if you've got a particularly like a product driven founder, early days, like they're coding, they're building the product, they're really into it. They know what's happening. But there's going to come a point where that business is going to tip over where the founder is spending more time with clients, more time with investors, more time on hiring, more time on strategy. That team has got to be able to understand where are we going? Like, why are we here? What's the purpose? Right. How are we going to reach that point? How do we want the customers to see us? And I think the more you define those structural pieces, the more you can kind of align everybody around something that's going to allow them to move forward independently but also in a way that's kind of consistent with what you want uh, the vision to be. And I just don't believe that if you can't get your team, you can't get your team to understand where you're trying to go, the problem you're trying to solve and how you want customers to, to feel about that. Um, you know, you're never going to be able to build an organization that scales out beyond those kind of initial employees because you're going to spend so much time chasing everybody to make sure they're on track, uh, which, you know, is just not sustainable as the business grows. And I think the brand and storytelling in particular, right? The company story has a really powerful ability to provide that foundation for people. Uh, and then, you know, you can build your systems and kind of frameworks uh, around that. Yeah, I think it's, it, when you talk about alignment, I think it's good because we, we actually, we've experienced that recently, right? So um, on, on, on the client project that we can collaborate on, for example, we had mm-hmm. to, we had to sort of review the way we're talking about the product. And I felt like from the process as well, that reviewing the actual messaging positioning and just the over, the way we talk about the entire company and the product itself and how we talk about the customer more importantly mm-hmm. is you know it always requires let's say a, a, a just every year to sort of just review where we're at right are we still offering the same benefits are we off, are we still pushing for the same vision um that i felt was super insightful from the entire process so far well and this is probably a little top of mind for me because I was uh, doing an on-site with a client earlier this week where this was a challenge. This is a med tech uh, startup. And, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about the story, the positioning, the mission, right? And we had their kind of whole leadership team uh, together in a room working through this. 
And one of the things that was really astounding was the more you got into it, they had never put any of this foundational stuff in before. It's really founder-driven sales in the business, a product team, you know, a, a client services team. And what was amazing were the disconnects, right, between where the founder saw the organization going, much more of this kind of data-centric platform, providing actionable insights. And then like the product team, which really thought they were primarily building a telehealth offering and the client services team, right, which really thought they were building like a prop tech tool, right, for the yeah. uh, for the facilities that they work with. And like, you know, what's what's interesting about these exercises is everyone's probably only 10 percent off, you know, kind of they all kind of fundamentally big picture sort of had the same idea. But man, that 10 percent yokes you in a couple pretty significantly different directions. And I think really nailing down, you know, let's have a mission that's clear, that everyone understands what this means. You know, and even to your point, clear vernacular, right? You know, when we say this, we mean this. When we say this, we mean this. When we speak to a customer, we're going to promise this. And I think those tightening those things up, you know, when you've got eight people in the company, you can play a little whack-a-mole, right? And try to kind of um, tamp that down as people sort of disconnect. But when you've got 20, 25, 50, 100, uh, the train gets really far down the tracks before you can kind of catch up to, to where people are. And I think that's why, at least for me, I always feel like setting this foundational stuff early is so critical. You know, you see, we work with some companies that might have 10 employees, 15 employees, you know, even eight, six, right? And like they put this in place and then as they start to onboard people and add people, um, you know, they're able to, uh, to build on that foundation. On the extreme other end, we have a client that's a publicly traded company. They've got, I think, 7,500 employees. And like you see now them trying to put these types of frameworks into place. And uh, I mean, the number of seminars, workshops you have to do to get that many people to kind of get their heads wrapped around this type of thing. The storytelling piece is like step one, but then there's a giant change management exercise that's way harder even after that. And, um, you know, I think if a company believes that it's going to hit those growth uh, sort of benchmarks, right, and, and scale the way that they want to, like you want to get this locked in early, not only because it's going to help you sell more faster and scale more quickly, but I think it's also going to give you a much better foundation as you draw people into the company to get them anchored in the right place as you go forward. Yeah. I think that's uh, pretty interesting. It It's important, I guess, for, let's say, the more technical industries as well, right? So I know you guys work with several technical verticals, of course, and it seems like that's sort of, even for the smaller teams where the low-hanging fruits start, right? To really align that internally before you start to amplify that further. Because once you get that right, then you're amplifying the right message opposed to having mm -hmm. to rewrite a message in people's mind, right? It's, it's almost, uh, I guess, throwing off, um, throwing prospects off that sort of cohesive brand experience, which you always require, right? And the yep. messaging, storytelling usually supports that. So I think if you had to sort of tell... I know that at Woding, you use a framework to actually move people across um, getting from starting out, sorry, to actually having a complete story, like story to tell, mm -hmm. right? And based on that, where do you think, for example, someone that just doesn't, is just starting out, so like these businesses that are starting out, what do you think the first thing they should focus on doing is, or the first two things, three things, whichever you think is recommended? Yeah, I think... I mean, I think, look, number one is getting together a clear uh, articulation of purpose. I mean, no one starts a company to make money. You know, there's way easier ways in this world to make money, go be a banker, uh, than to you know have a startup, right? Uh, so I think, but, you know, surprisingly few people can really kind of clearly articulate why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that, you know, being rooted in that authenticity is really, really critical. There are very, a lot of times, particularly tech companies are very good at telling their team or telling their customers what they're doing or what they're building, but they don't always, aren't always able to kind of harken back to like, yeah, this is why I'm crazy about this. And, you know, if you're a startup founder and you're working 14, 15, 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Um, you know, man, I hope you've got some sort of animating purpose, you know, that sits at the center of that. That's a lot of work to do if you don't really like love and care about the problem you're trying to solve. So, I think number one is really taking the time to think about that and nailing that down in a pretty sort of simple um, sentence. Uh, and it's got to be authentic. You know, I think 
a lot of startups want to tell some kind of sort of change, you know, world changing story that they think is going to land with investors and get them to sort of achieve this giant valuation. But at least for me, the companies that I've worked with that are most successful, they've got a really almost sort of uh, evangelistic belief in what their company is doing. And then, you know, it's the investors that get animated by and drawn into that, you know, as opposed to them trying to say, well, we think investors are going to want to hear X. So let's, let's tell them that. Right. So number one to me is like, start with that purpose, you know, really be able to clearly tell people, this is what we believe. Right. And I think, uh, starting that sentence with, you know, I believe, or we believe, right. Think about it as a belief statement. And if it's really something that you'd be willing to kind of like plant your flag in and say, this is the core belief at the center of who we are. I think that's going to start getting you down uh, the right track. You know, I think the second piece to that is really kind of figure out, you know, we use a storytelling framework that most people are familiar with, you know, the hero's journey. And I think mm -hmm. most companies, even before they think about their story in that hero's journey framework, they kind of know sort of who they are, right? They sort of probably know what a successful outcome looks like. They might even be able to describe their product pretty well, but they tend to gloss over kind of the front part of the journey, which is, you know, the broken world of the story, you know, the big pain point they're solving and like what's life like for the story's protagonist living in that broken world. And I think, you know, if I'm trying to grow a company, I want to be able to tell my customers pretty clearly, this is the pain. If you're a good fit for us, right? This is the pain that you should be experiencing. This is what your life should look like. And like, I'm here to help you guys figure out how to solve that. And I think, um, again, that can be hard, right? Because by definition, it's going to filter some people out. Uh, I happen to believe good stories attract in good customers, but also filter out the ones that you don't want. Um, but I think it also is really that foundation to helping everyone understand the customer viewpoint. I mean, empathy for that customer is rooted in the challenges that they have. You know, I think about, and I will name this company because it's a positive story. Like I think about the best sort of like receiving end of a sales pitch I've gotten for a B2B product uh, are from the folks at Zoom Info, right? And like, you know, our sales team, uh, was having some success and like, but their big barrier was just getting people on the phone. Like everything we were doing was all digital, was through email. And we knew our SDRs were not going to be successful if they couldn't actually talk to people. They were calling a lot of office numbers, but you know, obviously in today's day and age, most office numbers don't actually go to a human being. Yeah. And uh, you know, look, the guy from Zoom Info got up and, and, you know, basically said to us, like, how many SDRs do you have? We said three. He said, you know, how many people do they get on the phone a day? I was like, just a couple. And he said, yeah, he's like, that's got to be awful to be spending all that money on like a giant sales team and to just see them dialing and getting nowhere. I'm sure they're super frustrated by that. Uh, like, what if like everyone they called was a cell phone, right? And they could actually talk to people. Like, how would that grow your business? How would that change the sort of culture of your sales team, their ability to feel successful? And you start to lay that out and I can feel myself in those shoes. I'm like, yeah, that's us. Absolutely. I see the frustration on my team's face. I think about all these great customers we could get. And like, I don't even know to this day, our, our head of growth, uh, you know, Eric kind of runs our Zoom Info uh, platform. I know nothing yeah. about the Zoom Info platform. I don't know the product. <laughs> I don't know how it works. But like, I bought that, which is not an inexpensive product. Uh, I bought it literally because they were like, we will give you the right phone numbers that are and like done. And I'm sure we use them info for a bunch of other stuff that it does, but like none of those product features and benefits were ever going to move me, right? It was that you feel my pain, you get my pain. You're telling me you're going to give me a tool that's going to let my team resolve that. Like, stop talking, send me the paperwork, like, let's go. And I think that's where a lot of times the company, a B2B company misses, right? They get on the phone and instead of talking about that pain point I just mentioned, they say, well, you know, we have the world's leading database of contact information. We have all these numbers. We have all these emails. We can find all this data. And I'm just like, I don't care. Right. Like, but shifting that towards what I'm dealing with every day, so, so yeah. totally different conversation. And, um, mm -hmm. so again, what's your purpose and, uh, and, and, you know, how, what's that customer experiencing that's going to allow you and your team to empathize with them and, and connect with them. Yeah. That person painted you as you almost, it actually made you feel like the hero, right? That's going to save the sales team, but also painted yeah. the picture so you can see it visually, even though there's nothing in front of you, right? You got it. And I think that's important because sometimes that's all you're looking for. You can actually understand the product, the product features and stuff just by going to the website. In fact, um, I usually call the website your central hub of awareness 
simply mm -hmm. because that's where your detailed information lives. A website's there for your business, not to sell people, but to tell the people that already know about you or have come across it, what you do and how beneficial you're going to be towards them. Do you actually help them with what they're looking for? Yeah, one of the things I would encourage people to think about, right, is all the features and benefits, how the product works, how you interface with your customer, start to think about those as the reason to believe the story, not the story itself, right? So like the good story, a great brand story should evoke a response in the customer where they say, that's amazing. I want that. I love that. But like, it seems too good to be true. Prove it to me, right? And then that's where you can back up in the decision-making process with, okay, here's how the product works, right? Because, you know, in a B2B sale, they're not going to just, you know, I'm kind of being facetious about my Zoom info example. They're not going to probably just buy the product without really kind of kicking the tires on it. But you want them to make that emotional commitment on the front end of that, and then let them experience the product demo, let them experience the walkthrough, the free trial, you know, whatever the sort of details on the website are. Because if they've already made the emotional commitment, they're going to see all those things through the context of, does this validate what I already believe and what I want to do, right? And that's going to move them towards a decision versus when those features and benefits start at the top, you're now forcing the customer to say, this is what this does. How do I fit this into something I need? And, you know, the more work you're making them do, the more likely it is that they're going to fall out of the sales funnel and not, you know, convert. Yeah, I agree. Like, so th this all in all actually makes or breaks how successful you are in actually targeting your, you know, the prospects, right? Your mm -hmm. ICPs, your ideal customer profiles. And, and I guess for a startup, that is definitely important to get right. Because, you know, one, one point I had, and I really wanted to discuss just since you mentioned it earlier, it was around the customer research, right? And doing that so well, so well and enough, probably more than enough rather than just for mm -hmm. five minutes, but more so spending, I think the, a lot of time, probably the most time on that part, right? Really understanding them um, because that would sort of, if you're a startup, you may be already, you may be a trailblazer, fair enough, where you're, mm -hmm. so you've got to really educate people on why you're, you know, who you are and what you do and why it's so important. But when you're actually a startup that's competing against the giants with crazy ad budgets, they can just keep amplifying a specific message and it will, I don't want to use this word, but sort of, actually, I'm going to avoid using indoctrinate, but essentially educate a lot of people in yeah. understanding hey, well, this is this is us, this is what we do, right? Um, for example, like Salesforce with sales intelligence, et cetera, or, or just Zoom Info with a contact database, right? How, yeah. do you, how could you beat those giants in those particular areas? And doing, carrying out this exercise and actually understanding the customer at the very beginning, going to, in, just listening into sales calls and understanding yeah. what they were talking about, opposed to us saying, hey, well, we, we are this platform and, we have these features, but actually listening to why they're actually jumping on the call in the first place. Well, and I think it's critical as part of that, you know, if you're a challenger brand and you're in a space where you're competing against a Salesforce or you're competing against, a, you know, a Google, and you know that you're going to be at a critical disadvantage no matter what you do for resources, you know, you have to embrace this idea in your positioning and your story of what I want to, I'm going to call the contrarian right. Um, you know, if you think about kind of any positioning that you're going to develop as a company, it's going to generally fall into kind of one of four categories, either A, it's going to be sort of the same that everyone else is using. And even if it's the right positioning, you know, it's going to be uh, hard to differentiate from. Uh, or, right, you know, you might be using the same position everyone else is using. Maybe everyone else is wrong, but you're still not going to be able to stand out from the crowd. Uh, on the other hand, right, you can use contrarian positioning, which maybe is right and maybe is wrong. But the beauty of contrarian positioning is that even if it's wrong, you're still in the same spot you were going to be if you were using the same positioning. If you're stacked up against Google and you're using the exact same sort of value prop, the exact same pitch, like, but better, you know, hey, we're like Google, but better. Uh, you know, I think you're not going to win a lot of those battles, right? So you might as well embrace the sort of more contrarian view, the more outside view, because I think when you do that, right, you're, you're putting your chips on the only place that could win. And it's scary, right? Because you're fundamentally doing something different than the market leaders are doing. But you can't overtake a market leader by emulating them. Um, you mentioned Salesforce. Uh, we worked with a CRM company a couple of years ago, and uh, they started their sort of journey with us as a CRM company. 
And, you know, we had just this, I think, very kind of um, great session where we talked about this kind of idea of being contrarian. And we said, look, you know, at the end of the day, like if someone's buying a CRM, they're not buying you, right? Like they hear CRM, they're going to think, look, they're going to think Salesforce, they're going to think HubSpot. Like there are big, big, big players in the space. This company raised a series A. So like successful, but not, you know, certainly in that kind of dominant view. And uh, in their case, pushed all their messaging uh, actually around like their, their company's mission is to kill CRM. They are a CRM, but their entire sort of drive is around being anti-CRM. CRM doesn't work. CRM sucks. And I think, you know, by pushing yourself in that view, have they certainly over time probably lost some deals for people who said, oh, well, we want a CRM and these guys seem to hate CRM? Absolutely. But they've built this incredible customer base. And this goes to your ideal customer profile question among people who have had failed Salesforce deployments. I mean, you think about the universe of companies uh, that have tried to deploy Salesforce or some kind of sophisticated CRM like that, only to watch it kind of fall on its face. And they just clean up in that uh, sort of industry. And they built this really, really great business around that. Um, and I think, you know, at the time it was probably scary for them to say, we're going to take our entire product category and we're just going to trash it. Uh, but at the same time, I think realized either you make that bet or we're always going to just have to be kind of fighting for the scraps, you know, for people who don't want to be on Salesforce. And that's just not going to be a way to grow a business. So I think if you're that challenger brand on the outside, you know, you got to zig where everybody else zags. You got to look at that and say, how do I talk about this in a way that right, wrong or indifferent is going to force people to listen to me and force people to recognize that what we're doing is different. They may not make the buying decision. But, you know, at the end of the day, you get as a challenger brand, no benefit out of being right if you're right in the same way that everybody else is. You can only win if you're right and different at the same time as, a, uh, as, a, as an upstarter in the market. Yeah, I mean, even if it's not the buyer, the idea is that the strong message would come across to someone who can influence that sort of conversation or ignite mm -hmm. that sort of, you know, that trail internally. So, you know, it might ripple up to the the top and you're like hey well we just had a failed crm integration for example or implementation and so we should consider looking at these guys just to see what it's yeah. about and if they feel like hey well they fit the same message then oh sorry they fit the same sort of structure that these guys are pushing out uh then it's they're gonna find it as a, their almost their win right not yeah. just a benefit but they're gonna find it so easy to just say yes to and i think that's where I think I mentioned like you, I think we've talked about this in the past, actually USPs and the almost just throwing is, I think I've seen this quite a few times is people say, okay, so write down your USP. And when yep. they write down the USP, it's more so, um, and for those who don't know, sorry, unique selling propositions, um, but they list them out, but so many that you might think surely you can't be this, these can't be all of your USPs. It's not a unique yep. one, is it? It just seems... So it gets watered down, especially when going against the giants. So that thinking about, you know, zigging, like you mentioned in terms, well, while, whilst everyone is zagging, that's so critical in sort of getting the sort of eyeball, the, the eyeballs initially, right? And, yeah. and the, it's almost like the thumb stopper, right? For everyone on their mobile devices. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, um, this seems to be a kind of theme we keep coming back to. I agree with you about the unique piece, right? Most unique selling propositions miss the first word. Uh, but I think the other piece of it is, you know, I think if you're going to, I mean, think about the risk inherent in having a young company, you know, you got to embrace that risk fully. You've already embraced it in big ways. You, know, you left whatever your old job was, right? You put yourself out there to raise some capital. So don't back away from that when it comes time to sort of plant your flag in the ground and tell people why they should care about this as much as you. And I think when you think about that question about unique selling propositions, people try to build a tent that's so big, right? They're like, well, man, we don't want to lose any customers. So let's make sure we tell them this, we tell them that, we tell them this, we tell them that, we tell them this. And it's like, great. So you have now, yes, effectively described every potential thing that you could do for somebody and every potential problem you solve under the sun. But like, it's now meaningless, right? And I think that comes, I think, from a, a place of understandable fear, right? That you say, well, if we land on one USP and we're wrong, you know, like what's going to happen, right? You know, we're, if we're not right about this, it's going to, we're not going to convert. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the companies that have always been successful have got that one killer 
you know, thing where I use the Zoom info example, uh, you know, it, it was cell phone numbers for me. Maybe they have different ones for different buyer personas. You know, you don't right. certainly do your point. You don't have to have one USP for the entire company. If you've got 10 different buyer personas, you can say, hey, we know for each of these guys, you know, this mm-hmm. is going to be kind of the thing that drives them. But you got to pick one and you got to you got to run with it and you can tweak it and you can change it. You know, if you've done to your point, if you've done good customer listening, you should probably get it right first time out because uh, your customers presumably will have told you in your conversations with them. Here's here's what we want. But, um, you know, you, you got to at some point, uh, you know, place your bets. And I think um, I get that it's scary. Uh, I get that, you know, there's always going to be that voice in your head that says, like, well, what if we're wrong about this? Why don't we just have one more? Why don't we add one more little benefit, one more little feature, one more little thing? Um, but, you know, you got to you gotta hit that one thing that really does make you different. And I think particularly now, you know, you, you talked about the thumb stopper. Attention, you know, the real economy now, um, probably a bad thing to say in the era of like high inflation, but to me, like the real economy is not money right now. It's attention, you know, and I think, um, you know, you can I find money money pretty easily these days, uh, whether you're raising or borrowing or whatever, but like the one thing that is really competitive, the resource that's scarce is, is attention. And, you know, people are just so drawn across all these different screens, different devices, different messaging apps. And, um, you know, you're never going to cut through that noise with a laundry list of things or something that sounds like everything else. You know, I've probably already seen however many ads or gotten however many cold emails today. I've responded to none of them because none of them hit me in a way that was like, I got to have this conversation with somebody. And I think the only way you're going to do that is to find one urgent thing that that potential buyer, you know, they start scrolling through their feed to use like your thumb stopper phrase. They're scrolling through their feed. They see something and they're like, that's a conversation I have to have. And um, that's scary to sort of place your bets in that way. Um, but, you know, like you've embraced so much risk, everything else in you know, with every other part of your startup, with every other part of your business. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't listen out now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people, if you're going to focus on the one USP, right. Um, you can treat the rest of the benefits you want to cover as byproducts. So you can say, Mm -hmm. because you're achieving this, the byproducts are going to be also these, if they're focused on those byproducts and there's nothing wrong with that. And then with this, you know, and that sort of helps the people in terms of talking about thumb stoppers, I think it helps people to sort of actually do engage you with with something meaningful and 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 actually address and help find a way to see if this potential solution actually can help in their everyday lives and we've got to remember that everyone's got a finite amount you know amount of time Mm -hmm. um but there's way more platforms nowadays to actually engage on so it's like you can't get the same message out on like 50 different different platforms well you can but it'll probably water down the message because yeah. the the audiences are different, the way they interact on the platforms are different. So, you know, aside from user behavior on those platforms, uh, the thumb the real thumb, thumb stopper is going to be the one that focuses on. We actually understand that this person, this person in this community on this platform that likes to engage in this way, has a certain amount of time they like to spend on this platform. We are not going to waste their time when we actually show them an ad. So. Yep. Or, 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 or a piece of content. So why not show them the most valuable piece? And that's if that's to do with what you do and, you know, the actual main benefit, uh, educating them about the problem, whatever it is, depending on if you're a trailblazer or against a giant. It's just a, getting to the point and actually showcasing that. Well, and I think what you know, to, to extend that point that you just made, if you're if your campaigns and your story is effective, right? Remember that that stuff is is content. You know, uh, I'll harken back to my newspaper days, but uh, there was a point in like, I think the early 80s where a lot of newspapers were, you know, kind of still struggling. And uh, this Newark Star-Ledger did a survey of their readers to kind of understand why they continue to subscribe to the Star-Ledger. And one of the big things that they heard for people was like, more so even than the news, they subscribed for the ads, right? They thought there were good good uh, coupons, good sort of flyers in there. And as I've sort of gone through my whole career beyond the newspaper business, it's always stuck with me that like good ads are content. And I think, you know, you talk about these pain points, you talk about educating people. If you're solving a real need for a customer, you know, don't think about your your messaging or your marketing as being like, 
pure demand generation. Don't think about it as being this kind of like necessary evil. I think a lot of the times we kind of roll our eyes and say, yeah, all right, we need a sales team. I guess we have to do this, right? But it's like, if you're solving a real pain point for someone, this goes back to that purpose thing. Like if you believe what you're doing and you think you're solving a real problem for people, then like the ads you're putting out there are the content to your exact point a second ago. It's the content people want to see. If I'm sitting up all night thinking about, and you, you know, anyone who's a founder knows this. I mean, how many nights of like, you know, your wife's asleep and like, you should be asleep too. And like, we're watching TV and instead you're like sitting at your kitchen table, just thinking about like X, Y, and Z problems. And, uh, you know, an ad that speaks to that person and says, Hey, you want help with this? That's forget the sales piece for a second. That's great content. That person wants to see that. And I think we have to think about our stories in that hero centric, customer centric way where what we're communicating is not about exploiting them. It's not about creating a sale. It's about putting them at the center of this, helping them see a pain point and ultimately empowering them to get educated enough to solve it, which hopefully involves, you know, buying your product or service. But at the end of the day, a great purpose-driven company is going to be thinking about, you know, why are we here? Why should people care about that? And like, how do I connect that to my audience in a way that's going to make them as passionate about that as I am? Yeah, I totally, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think what I was thinking about earlier as well was uh, you mentioned, for example, how you differentiated the sort of telecoms company, student telecoms company, and that sort of kick things off mm -hmm. but i was wondering if there's any other case studies that are similar to that right or i know you mentioned a few examples so maybe you've actually used them all up right now <laughs> yeah uh, but there's probably more <laughs> there's probably more uh, but it's i mean it's really up to you Ed, but i would say that it'd be cool to hear how you've sort of implemented the, the word and framework to actually help someone um break it down really whether it's in the early stages or even when they were having a significant problem yeah, no, I actually, uh, we worked with about 300 companies at this point. So I've got, uh, mm -hmm. I've got probably more case studies than anyone on this podcast would ever want to see. <laughs> but, uh, one, one that I'll use that I think is really kind of cool. Uh, there's a database company uh, called Redis Labs uh, that we worked mm -hmm. with uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, so Redis uh, is rooted in an open source uh, database uh, called Redis. And uh you know, they decided to start to move into the enterprise market to compete against like MongoDB and Couchbase and, and uh, Azure and AWS. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, their big challenge, I think, very kind of common course problem for tech startups, right, is uh, how do you differentiate in a universe of kind of a lot of different cloud databases, a lot of people that kind of look the same. And in their case, particularly frustrating is they started to roll out this enterprise offering. What they discovered was that like some absurd number of the Fortune 500, you know, beyond 80% uh, of the Fortune 500 were using Redis in their business. All of them were using the open source uh, platform. And like, oh, despite wow. this incredible uptick uh, in mm -hmm. the Fortune 500 for their open source pro pro platform, could not get people to buy the enterprise. And they just could not figure out like, why is it that we're so good at getting adoption, but like we're terrible at converting with people who should be using this, people who already love our product, like we just don't get it. So when we went out and started doing the uh, the, the sort of work of, of um, building out their story, you know, that same customer listening piece came into uh, practice like we were talking about earlier. And what we discovered was like very common in that enterprise sale they were really effective at speaking to the person sort of on the ground in the tech technical part of the organization they were selling to. That person did not have any buying authority to make a change to like the enterprise database architecture, but certainly could deploy like an open source platform, run experiments. And so they had this mm -hmm. big kind of passionate group of techies, like who were getting them in the door. But then of course the problem would be they were incapable of advocating up in the organization. What you would find is when you ask them why they liked Redis, they would give you actually that very technical answer, right? Well, oh man, Redis is in-memory database speeds allow you to do this and unstructured data and like whatever. And you can already imagine like the COO who is ultimately making the decision on probably the database architecture, like their eyes rolling over and being like, I don't care about this at all. Sounds like AWS is fine. Like, let's just stick with that. So what we realized is we had to come up with a story for them that did a couple of things. It had to speak on a brand level but then it had to have layers for each part of the value chain, right? So how do you come up with one story 
that then has applications so that as people move Redis up the value chain, as people are, are making buying decisions inside the company, the core value is the same, but the way it gets applied to each of those people is different. And uh, in their case, what we landed on was the businesses that run fastest run Redis. And the way that we were able to kind of build the story out was that when you start by talking to the technical buyer, it's all about those product features, right? Fast, fast uh, access to data, best in-memory database speeds, best ability to process and manage unstructured data, that resonates. You then go up right to the um, next level up in the organization, typically like a VP of engineering level, and it's all about speed to market, right? So, you know, those guys are pressured to ship, ship products, meet, meet deadlines, get things out the door. And the entire messaging at that part is all about speed to market, speed of development, speed of shipping, right? So same benefit, but applied in a different way. And then when you get up to the sort of third level, it becomes all about speed of innovation. You know, all these course big companies are very focused right now on how to more quickly innovate their, their technology infrastructure. And this idea, right, that Redis is that like really nimble, fast moving uh, platform that you want to build on, right? If you want to be able to take advantage of information that is not what that does not look the way it used to look, like Redis is what you have to do to keep your company with a competitive edge, moving faster than people. And what we saw, which is pretty cool about that was like, it was that perfect example of you listen to the customer, you hear a story, you come up with something that's very authentic to Redis. I mean, Redis had the data to be able to verify if like we are the fastest sort of people at this, this is what we do best. So authentic to who they are, consistent with what their value prop is, but applied in a way that pushes through the organization. So it speaks specifically to each of those people. And, um, you know, pretty cool outcome. Redis is a, a unicorn now. I think their last round valued them at like 1.7 billion or something like that, which is really, really cool. They've had a, a lot more traction with the enterprise product. But, you know, a lot of it came down to, in that case, a great example of this is an amazing product. This is an amazing team, right? This is an amazing offering. And just that little tweak in how you talk about it and how you communicate it to people uh, is the difference between kind of where you are now and, you know, getting over to the other side of the, uh, the other side of the gap. Yeah, it's like you had these uh, micro segmentations of that big message so that it appeals yep. to those individual people inside the entire organization, which is great when it when you're talking about the ripple effect of getting amplifying yep. that message right from bottom top, uh, bottom to top of the um, the enterprise. Sorry, but yeah, no, I think that's pretty that's pretty interesting actually. Might have to. Uh, I wonder if you guys if you guys ever have a public bank of case studies, it'd be super interesting to read on. Um, well. I'll, I'll share my only sort of shameless plug for today, although I think going back to my idea of things being content, <laughs> this will be helpful. Uh, we have a book uh, that includes uh, a lot of the stuff. So uh, if folks check out uh, strategy.wodenworks.com, uh, there's a, a free download of an ebook there. Uh, and uh, it's got uh, sort of a great uh, run through of number one. It'll tell you exactly how to build out messaging. The first kind of chapter of the book walks you through how to do this customer research piece how to build out your sort of pain points, uh, very kind of straightforward uh, how to, and then uh, it'll back you up on uh, how to and examples of great companies that have applied this in uh, culture, customer experience, uh, growth, and even uh, kind of long-term company strategy. So uh, I think uh, there's some case studies in there, but if, if people want to apply this uh, strategy.wodenworks.com, and I think that book will really help uh, move you forward in that way. Yeah, and even for those that are listening, watching, uh, you know, however you're consuming this content right now, right? Um, or will consume this content. Uh, <laughs> I'll link it. I'll link that in the description so that's easier cool. for you guys to get. So I'll get that link off. Ed, um, feel free to send that to me, Ed, and then we can uh, link that for everyone. But yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been honestly a very super interesting conversation. And it's I think when you start to, no one really dives this deep into sort of storytelling, branding, uh, messaging overall. And, um, but when you do actually get into sort of the, the, the weeds of everything, it, you really sort of can pull apart the different elements that are actually important, especially for a startup, right? Someone who needs to compete yep. fast and needs to get things going. But, uh, but yeah, Ed, anything you want to add? I think the only thing I would add is, uh, just a word of thanks. Uh, first of course, thanks to uh, everyone who's been with us here for the last few minutes, uh, listening along. I uh, appreciate everyone tuning in and hope that this was uh, valuable and worthwhile for you. So thanks for uh, being engaged today. And Neil, of course, thank you to you for having me on. It's been a great uh, and invigorating conversation. Grateful for the opportunity. So uh, thanks for having me on here today. And, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my pleasure, Ed. But uh, 
there we have it, everyone. You know, if you're looking to grow your startup effectively, you know, messaging or storytelling overall, as it is mentioned, is super effective, but also critical in how you actually grow your business and then how it sort of takes off from the early stages. So it's, you know, it's important to have that in place for this could be for B2B startups, you know, it could be a great differentiator in how prospects actually perceive you and uh, how they can understand your vision, your mission, and uh, how you're actually going to impact their daily lives, right? Uh, but yeah, no, thanks for coming, Ed. This has been amazing and insightful. Where can people follow and reach out to you, Ed, if they have any questions or if they want to collaborate with Bowden? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, website is uh, wodenworks.com. Uh, if you want to follow the company, you would definitely suggest uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I am uh, ironically atrocious at social media, so you're more than welcome <laughs> to connect with me. Uh, I don't post probably as much as I should, but I love uh, direct messaging with people. So, uh, you know, uh, add me and, and feel free to shoot me a note and uh, would love to uh, uh, hear what people think, uh, answer any other kind of questions, of course. Uh, or uh, certainly you can check out uh, our blog and the other content that we have on our website. And hopefully that'll be equally as helpful to you uh, as our, as our conversation today. So thanks. Yeah. And I'll make it convenient for everyone by linking those uh, links to uh, in yeah. the description for everyone, of course, but if everyone did like it, uh, like the actual content today, or so for example, this chat, I want to see more. If you have any questions uh, on potential topics you want to discuss, do drop them in the comment section, of course, um, whether you're on podcast or YouTube, please do subscribe and, and follow so that you don't miss out on any content in particular. Otherwise, like and share if you feel this is going to be useful for other people as well and other businesses too, or even any other marketers. Uh, thanks for having, uh, sorry, thanks for being here again, Ed. But otherwise, uh, hope you all have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Thanks, Neil. We'll see you.